I want you to open your Bible with me this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 15. And while you're looking, excuse me, I said second, 1 Corinthians 15. And while you're looking for that, I want to read to you again something we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks from the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We began talking a couple of weeks ago about the glory of God. How many have been with us over just the last couple of weeks? You've heard some of these things, the glory of God. We've been talking about the fire and the glory. And I guess when you come to a day like this, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, as a church, you've got an option. You know, you hear you've been talking about the glory of God, but then you've got this day here that's significant, and it seems like you should talk about that on a day like this. So I guess if our choices were, do we talk about the glory or do we talk about the resurrection? What do we do? And then I've got this great idea, and it's like option C. How about we talk about both? Let's do that. What do you say? In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Beginning in verse 1, the chapters leading up to this were all about the, the build out and the finishing of the temple. And David had gotten so big in his heart, I want to build God a house. And I want it to be amazing. I want it to be beautiful. And the Lord told him through the prophet, he said, you're not going to build it. Your son is. He said, but I will let you prepare for it. So David started giving. And he gave, and he gave, and he gave, and he gave, and he collected, and, and his giving inspired other people's giving. And if you can do some of the math on it, but it was at least in the hundreds of millions of today's dollars, if not more, by some calculations, into the billions. So when God said, I'll let you prepare for it, David said, okay. <laughs> and he did, man. He went for it. And it cost a lot of money. And it took a lot of time. Best that I can tell, it took up over a decade from start to finish of this building project. But then when it had finally wrapped up, all the people got together and Solomon began to pray. And he prayed in chapter 6 and he dedicated this place to God. And in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down. Don't you love it? Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Amen. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord saying, say this with me, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. God takes dedication very seriously and very personally. As a matter of fact, I believe when you offer something up in dedication to him, in his eyes, he sees it as an invitation. Your dedication is an invitation to his glory. When somebody says, God, this thing is yours, it belongs to you, it will serve no other purpose, it will be put in no other hands, it's dedicated to you. He says, thank you very much. And he just comes flooding into that, whatever it is, with his presence, with his glory. And you know, you can dedicate anything. 
You can dedicate this temple, this body that is the temple of the Holy Ghost. You can dedicate this. We've talked some about it. Father, I dedicate this temple to you. I ask you to fill it with your glory. This is something I pray almost on a daily basis, dedicating this temple to him. And when, it, when I dedicate this, he sees it as an invitation to fill this temple up with his glory. Let's talk for a moment just about one other thing in this, especially in light of what we're celebrating today. Back in verse one, it said, when Solomon had finished praying, the fire came down and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, the sacrifices. In the Old Testament, there was a practice of making animal sacrifice, one that we don't practice now. And the reason we don't practice it now is because every sacrifice and every offering then pointed to the one that was to come. And that's why it says of Jesus that he entered in once and for all. In other words, there's no need for another sacrifice. There's no need to burn another sacrifice. There's no need to put another animal on the altar. There's no need to shed any more blood. It's been done once and it's been done for all. That's why we don't practice it now. But there are still things to learn and see in it in, in this, uh, this practice of making these sacrifices. I mean, you could spend days and weeks just talking about these things, but the bottom line is every one of them point to Jesus. Every one of them are like a neon flashing sign saying, look at him, look at him, look at him. Including this sacrifice on this day. When an Old Testament believer, if you will, one of God's people, when it came time to make a sacrifice, I think they had an understanding and a, and a revelation and a concept of what it means to sacrifice that most of us now in a modern world don't understand. Because for many, just the concept of sacrifice sort of has with it a, a sadness. There's a, there's a sad connotation with it. There's a sense of loss. I'm sacrificing. I'm giving something up, right? There was none of that in these people's minds. When they would make a sacrifice, they understood why they were doing it. They understood, especially in that burnt offering and in that sin offering, the sin sacrifice, they fully understood that it was their sin, are you with me? Their sin that put distance between them and God. They knew it. They were aware of it all the time. I can't come close. I can't draw near. When he showed up on that mountain that day, everybody was like, stay back, stay back, stay back. Now you would think, no, run to him. Uh-uh, not these people. No, because they knew the closer they got, the closer they got to death. Because sin had created this barrier and this distance between them and God. So when they brought that sacrifice and part of the instruction was you had to place your hand on the head of that animal, lay your hand on it, the Bible said. When you look it up, it literally means to lean on it, to rely on, to put your weight onto it. It's the significance of this dependency. I am counting on you, little sheep. <laughs> Understanding that 
I'm imparting my sin onto this animal. And thank God he's not requiring my death. He's going to let this one be my substitute. But instead of saying, man, I sure hate to see this sheep go. Instead of saying, I hate to lose this one. He's good looking. He's pure. He's white. I'd sure like to hang on. There was no sense of loss because they saw it that when that animal died, so died the distance between them and God. The distance between them had been put to death. Now, the moment they left that place and turned around and go sin, guess what? <laughs> All that distance is back. And this was the problem with this shadow of the things that were to come and it was never ending. You could never come to the place where you could finally draw near to God and finally live in his presence there was this, this constant, habitual, repetitive distance between you and God. And these sacrifices, the reason they rejoiced over them was because even if it was just in this moment, we got fellowship. We're restored. There's no space between us. When that sacrifice died, so died the distance. Does that make sense? We'll study this, I think, in the weeks to come. But that offering that day, was something like 20-something thousand bulls, over 120,000 sheep and cattle. Why would they do that? Don't think of it as trying to buy something with God, but think of it as the expression of their heart. This is how much we want to be close. This is how close we want to be. And the only way we know to articulate it is in thousands and thousands upon thousands of offerings to you. You got to hear these things and understand them spiritually. They don't make a lot of sense to the natural mind, but your heart will get it if you're open to it. The sacrifice and this burnt offering had to do with it the, co the concept of coming close, coming near. In 1 Corinthians 15, did you find that? 1 Corinthians 15, the Spirit of God speaking through Paul in verse 1, he wrote and said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand. By which, he said, verse 2, also you are saved if... You hold fast that word which I preached to you. What word was that? The gospel. If you'll hold on to the gospel, you can stand in it. If you'll hold on to it, it'll save you. If you will hold fast to the gospel, that thing that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse three, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Or you could say according to the word. What's he doing now? He's going back over this gospel. He's re-preaching to them again the gospel. What was the message he preached? It was simple. Christ died for your sins, according to the word. Verse four, and that he was buried. That's part of the gospel. And that he rose again the third day. That's the gospel, according to the scriptures. All of these things are the gospel. And this is what you got to love about the gospel. It's so simple. He just in a verse or two 
restated everything he'd preached to him before. And he said, if you'll hold on to this right here, if you will hold fast to this and believe this and get so stinking rooted and grounded in this, it will save you day after day after day. Hold on to what? Jesus died for you. He was buried and he rose again. Yeah, yeah, I got all that. But what else? No, 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 no. Jesus died for you, for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. This is the gospel. And this is what I love about it. It's so simple. It's so simple, yet you could spend every day of the rest of your life on this earth digging and digging and digging and never find the bottom of it. There's more revelation in that. There's more knowledge and insight. There's more power. And you could just spend time meditating and reading and studying. Christ died for my sins. And I know it's simple, but listen to it. Christ, Christ, what's that mean? The anointed one, the anointed one, Jesus, the anointed one. Do you remember what Galatians three says? Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law, being made a curse for you. For it is written, cursed is everyone that does what? Hangs on a tree. But isn't it interesting to you that the Bible didn't say Jesus? It said Christ has redeemed you. Now, I know it's the same thing, but, but let, let the technicality of it, if you will, speak to you. The anointing did that. What's he saying? The anointed one, Jesus the anointed, on the cross, exchanged the anointing, and he became Jesus the cursed. Jesus the anointed became Jesus the cursed. So that we who were cursed could have a taste of the grace and that same anointing that's on him. Christ died for my sins. Okay, yeah, I got it. Yeah, but do you? Come on, do you really? This is what I love about the gospel. Christ redeemed me from the curse. The anointed one traded his anointing and he took upon himself the curse so that the blessing of Abraham would come on me. Is that getting anybody else excited? It should. This goes on. He said in verse five that he was seen. Jesus was seen by Cephas. That's Peter. Then by the 12 and that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. So at the time Paul wrote this, check this out. At the time he wrote this, there were still on the earth, right in these places, hundreds of people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Not one or two, hundreds He said Jesus revealed himself to more than 500 at once. And he said, most of them are still here. Some of them have fallen asleep, but most of them are still here. That goes to serve to the veracity and the the infallibility of this word. These are hundreds of people that said, I saw him. I saw him. That would be enough people to max out this room. If all all those people were in this room, I said, raise your hand if you saw the resurrected Jesus. Every hand would go up. Proving he's alive. 
He said after that in verse 7, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Skip to verse 11. He said, therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. What do we preach? We're preaching Jesus. We're preaching the gospel. We're preaching he died. He was buried and we're preaching he rose again. That's what we preach. But he said in verse 12, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He's writing to church folk. He's writing to believers in the church. And he's saying, look, I saw him. James saw him. Peter saw him. More than 500 saw him. We're all eyewitnesses. We're testifying of this. But there's still some among you who said there is no resurrection from the dead. Now, when he's talking about resurrection from the dead, he's not just talking about what Jesus did, but what you will do. Oh, you can get excited about this in just a minute. He's not just talking about what Jesus did. See, part of that gospel message that he died for you, that he was buried, that he rose again. If you look in other places in scripture, you see that part of that message was that this thing, this life on earth is not all there is. He wrote to the church and the book of Colossians and he said, man, I heard about your faith. I heard about the love that you have for one another. And then he, then he identified where that faith and where that love came from. And he said, it came when you heard the gospel and the hope. Somebody said the hope, the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. That was part of that gospel, the preaching of heaven, the hope. That word hope means earnest expectation, confident expectation of not what you have and see right now, but what is to come, what you don't see. This is a major part of the life of the believer. It's not just the things we hope for or have faith for here in this life. It's what we hope for in the future. Amen. Heaven was a part of that gospel message. And evidently people got so excited about the expectation of heaven and the coming reality of heaven that it affected the way they lived right here, right now. It affected their faith here and now. It affected their love here and now. What did that? Heaven did that. Amen. The expectation of heaven did that. I know the Lord had to deal with me a couple of years ago. He said, Jeremy, heaven's not, or heaven's real and you're not talking enough about it. And I realized he's right. He always is. <laughs> and I got to think, why am I not talking? I should be talking about heaven. And maybe you've heard me tell this, but um, it came to me as a thought, you know, as a kid growing up in church, a little kid, especially as a pastor's kid, you end up going to a lot of weddings and you end up going to a lot of funerals. Not to mention all the church services in between. But it seemed like I had this memory of being at a funeral, I don't know, eight or 10 years old. And I just remembered the person standing behind the pulpit, sort of looming over that casket with that lifeless body in it and talking about this person and talking about the the closing days of their life here on earth. And they just kept saying, oh, they just kept talking about heaven. They just kept talking about heaven. So hungry for heaven. And they just kept talking about heaven and talking about heaven and talking about heaven. Now, if you're eight years old and you're sitting in that, 
crowd of people. What do you hear? Whatever you do. Right? Are you with me? Come on. Whatever you do, don't talk about heaven. Why? You will go there. Like now. And it's a silly thought, but I think somewhere along the way, a bit of fear got in. That, well, man, you know, if you start talking this, I understood the power of my words and I start talking about heaven, it may send me there sooner than I want. Here's the deal. Don't be afraid. Talking about heaven's not going to send you there sooner than you're supposed to go. But what it will do is bring it here. It will bring heaven here. Because you're talking it. And the more you talk it, the more you begin to expect it. And that was a part of that gospel message. He died. He was buried. He rose again. And you're getting up too. And there were people in this church who heard the gospel and they believed to the best they thought they could. But Paul had to write them and say, why are there some among you that don't believe and say there is no resurrection from the dead? Listen to this. He's going to give you the implications here. If there's no resurrection from the dead, he said it in verse 13. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, what I'm standing here doing right now is a waste of your time and mine. There's nothing in it. It's empty, powerless. If he didn't raised from the dead. If he didn't come back from the dead, what I'm saying is empty and your faith is empty. It's meaningless. It's powerless. If he wasn't raised from the dead, we all ought to go home right now. I need to find another job and you better find something else to do on Sunday mornings because this is a colossal waste of time if he wasn't raised from the dead. Hold on. It gets worse. Verse 15, he said, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, you know what I am? A liar. All this preaching is just lying if he wasn't raised from the dead. He said, we're found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead did not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. That means it's devoid of power. There's no force. There's no strength. There's no energy in it. If he wasn't raised from the dead. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And even worse than that, you are still in your sin. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, us Christians, we're pathetic. That's what he's saying. We're pathetic. Because if he's not risen then this hope and expectation of heaven 
is not real. We're a bunch of liars. And all there is to this life is what you see here, what you have now, what you feel. That's all there is. He said, if that's all there is, we Christians are pathetic. We are a sad, sorry group of people. Thank God that that chapter did not end right there. But went on in verse 20 and said, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Thank you, Lord. Somebody say, thank you, Lord. If he's risen, then what's that tell you about everything you just read? It tells you that this preaching is not empty. It tells you that your faith is not empty. It tells you that this is not a waste of time, that we are not a a bunch of pathetic, pitiable group of people. This tells us that heaven is real and we have every right to expect it and to look forward to it and to allow that expectation to change the way we live right here and now on this earth. I mean, you want evidence that Jesus has been raised from the dead? Let me ask you, is there anybody in here who's ever, or would raise a hand and, and, and say you have at least at one point in your life experienced your faith doing something. It worked. It produced something. You saw him. You saw God work. You saw a miracle. You saw him do something you couldn't do on your own. You saw faith do that. Guess what that means? Jesus got up. It's proof of that. Well, I was just believing to have my life bill paid and did it work? Yeah. That means Jesus is alive. I just, I hurt my knee and I just thought I'd ask God to heal it. And he did. Guess what that means? Jesus got up. Glory to God. It's proof. It's proof that what I'm saying to you right now is not empty. It's not void. It's got something in it. Glory to God. It's got the life of God in it. It's got the power and the anointing in it. It's proof that Jesus got up. Thank you, Lord. I'm getting preachy. Thank you, Lord. Skip down to verse 35. Listen to this. He said, but some will say, it's almost like Paul saying, I can hear you right now. I can hear you saying this. How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? It's so funny that it has become a badge and a mark of superiority in this life and higher intelligence when you ask a question. People, people find such pride in, I'll ask this question and they don't know the answer. You just ask a question. Anybody can ask a question. It's not a sign of superiority. It's not a sign of higher intelligence. Guess what? If you don't know the answer yourself, you as ignorant as everybody else. But yet this, this degree of pride and arrogance is on full display in our world to say that there can't be a God because I don't see how there could be. Oh, because you don't see in your amazing mind, you don't, oh, well, if you don't see, then there must not be one. I don't see how Jesus could have been raised from the dead. That's impossible. Why? Cause I just don't see how. Oh yeah? You say he was raised from the dead? Tell me how. I got him. I said, tell me how. (laughs) Can you hear these people? Okay, fine. You say he's raised from the dead? Answer this simple question. How? 
And not just him being raised, but you saying we're all going to be raised. That those who have fallen asleep in Christ and those who will, you're saying that they will be raised? Okay, fine. Answer this simple question. How? And then, yeah. (laughs) And then he asks another one. How will they be raised up? And with what body do they come? But the New Living Translation says, what kind of body are they going to have? You can hear the defiance in the voice, right? Explain to me how and tell me what the body's going to look like. Because I saw it go into the ground and it wasn't pretty. And it's been down there who knows how long now. And it's coming back. Give me, give me an explanation of number one, how it's going to happen. And number two, what the body's going to look like. And it's people asking these questions thinking, man, I've got you pegged. I've got you cornered. There's no way these things can be true. But I thought what we'd do for a couple of minutes this morning is answer these questions. I mean, we believe this stuff, don't we? Do you think it'd be good to be able to answer the question how? How are the dead raised? Go to the book of Ephesians. I forgot to start my clock. So if I start it right now, do I have an hour? Is that, why don't we just turn it off? How about that? In the book of Ephesians, chapter one, let me read to you from the Amplified, the classic edition, and we'll have this on the screen for you. Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse 16, Paul said, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Again, this is the Amplified. Making mention of you in my prayers, for I always pray to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Check this out. You ready? The Father of glory. I thought he was the father of Jesus. Yeah, exactly. The father of glory, that he may grant you a spirit of wisdom and revelation of insight into mysteries and secrets in the deep and intimate knowledge of him. Do you hear that? Deep and intimate, not surface, deep, not casual, intimate. He's saying, I'm praying that you would have this, that he would give this to you, deep and intimate knowledge of him. How's that happen? By having the eyes of your heart flooded with light so that you can know and understand the hope, there's that hope again, to which he has called you. Now, sometimes we read this and we, there's other translations that say the hope of his calling and we think, okay, he's praying that we would understand what he's called us to do in this life. And that's certainly part of it. But what you need to understand is that heaven is as much your calling, if not more so than anything you do on this earth. Just think about it by reason of time. Say you've got a a young one, a a son or a daughter growing up in your house. And man, in your house, it's big. It's a big thing to you. We're going to find out. We're going to seek God over his plan for you and over his desire for your life. Our little girl, Jessie, played basketball this year for the first time in a league. And uh, man, she was good. We got excited about her plan. She did a great job. We had some basketball on yesterday. And she said, Daddy, is there a women's NBA? And I said, yeah, there is. And I could see the wheels turning. Later on in the evening, she's like, do you think I could play in it? I was like, well, baby, those girls are tall. <laughs> like way taller than daddy. And I said, it would take a lot of work. I said, but here's the big thing. You got to find out what God's called you to do. 
You got to find out what he's created you for. And if he's called you to it, yeah, you can do it. So say you got a house like that, right? And you're raising up young ones to find out what the plan and the call of God is on their lives. And they come at an early age to discover it, say 18, 20 years old. And, and they, they make that commitment. God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to love you with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. And from this day to the end of my life on this earth, I'm yours. I'm going to do what you call me to do. And they spend the next 60, 65 years doing what God called them to do. Well, you look at that and you think, man, that's basically their entire life. They spent their whole life doing that thing. And you say, well, that was the call. Yeah, but what about what you do for the 10,000 years after that? And the 100,000 years after that? And the next million years after that? Heaven's as much a part of the call of God on your life as anything you do on this earth. What's he praying here? I, come, I pray that you'd come to know that. Amen. That hope, that expectation that it would be big in you. He said that you would know and understand the hope to which he's called you. And how rich is his glorious inheritance in the saints, his set apart ones. And so that you can know and understand, listen, what is the immeasurable and unlimited and surpassing greatness of his power that's in us and for us who believe. Sad to say it that most believers have no idea of the grace deposit that's been put on the inside of them. If you had any idea what was working in you right now, you wouldn't fear for another second in your life. You wouldn't worry over another thing in your life. If you were aware of this surpassing and exceeding the greatness of his power that's at work in you and for you because you're a believer. But listen to this. He said, I can't, I'm praying that you would come to know that immeasurable, unlimited, surpassing greatness of his power that's in us and for us who believe as demonstrated in the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. How are the dead raised? Well, if, you're gonna, if you want to know how you are going to be raised, you just look back to how Jesus was raised. And we see here in this scripture that it took, are you ready for this? It took the exceeding greatness of the mighty power of God to raise him from the dead. Now, I'm not aware of another place. There may be, but I'm not aware of one right now, of another place in scripture that talks about anything requiring that much from God. Isaiah 53 is the prophet speaking, looking forward in time to Jesus on the cross. You know what it starts with? Verse one, who has believed our, our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm, the arm of the Lord. Jesus talked about what it took to cast out demons. Does anybody remember what he said? I cast out demons with the finger of God. The finger. That's how much God power it takes to cast out demons. Boop. 
like you would flick something off a table? How much power did that take from you? Huh? And that's what Jesus said. I cast out demons with the finger of God. I used to youth pastor. I was never big on Halloween. I just didn't get it. And I told the kids one time, I was like, look, I don't celebrate Halloween. But I think if I did, I would go out there dressed up as the finger of God. <laughs> Casting out all those demons and ghosts and goblins. And... That's not a lot of power, is it? One time Jesus was confronted by a man who had a legion of demons in him. Thousands and thousands of evil spirits controlling this man. Wow. I wonder how much power that took to get rid of all those demons. You want to know how much power it took? Boop. That's how much power it took. There are other places in scripture that talk about the hand of God. That's a little more strength. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And what will he do? Exalt you. But this resurrection thing, that took something else. It was not finger power. It was not even just hand. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If you looked up that word arm, it means strength. That same word is also translated like this. You ready? Mighty power. What would we just read about mighty power? Number one, he said, it's working in you. And if you need some sort of picture of what kind of power this is, it's the same power required from God to raise Jesus from the dead. Mighty power. There's something, I think, in us that we've been shallow in our understanding. We read this like all this was just a foregone conclusion. You know, this was always just the way it was going to happen and it was going to be nothing. And God said it. And so that's what it's going to be. Amen. Good, good word. I don't think we fully understand and appreciate the risk that was involved in this. This had not been done. Now the dead had been raised before, even in Jesus' own ministry. But this was different. This was different. I'm going to get into something here for a minute. It's going to make you shout or make you mad. But I've got scripture for you. Why did it take that much strength from God? The working of his mighty power. This was not a foregone conclusion. This was not, these words fail, but guaranteed, if you will. This offering had to be a free will offering. And there came a moment shortly before the cross where Jesus was in the garden and the pressure of this thing was sitting in on him and he went away to pray and his physical body, this body of flesh, this temple, this earthen vessel was under so much pressure that he began to sweat blood. It's literally a medical condition where the blood pressure is so high that it begins to come out the pores of the skin. And he cried out, my God, if there is any way 
this cup can pass from me. But then what did he say right on the other side? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If at any point in time, Jesus had allowed his will to supersede the will of the father, this whole thing would have been off. And he went over back to the disciples and of course they're there praying in the Holy Ghost and no, what were they doing? (laughs) Sleeping. And he said, wake up. Can you not watch and pray with me for an hour? And then he said this, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now for years I read that like, yeah, wake up dudes. Your flesh is weak. Your spirit wants to pray, but your flesh is weak. I realized later he's not talking about them. He's talking about himself. This is what he's dealing with. This is what he's wrestling with. Come on, I need you to pray. I'm wrestling with something here. The willingness of my spirit is crying out, God, I want to do your work. But the weakness of my flesh is going, is there some other way? And this is why Isaiah said there in chapter 53 that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And when he was there at that scourging post and he was being beaten and bruised with these stripes for your healing, you know what the the prophet said there? He opened not his mouth. He kept his mouth shut. He says it like three different times. He opened not his mouth. Why? Because if at any point he had opened his mouth and said, stop it, stop it. I can't do it. Stop it. I'm innocent. I don't deserve this. A legion of angels would have come to his rescue, saved him, but you'd be lost. This whole thing was riding on him, keeping his mouth shut. Mm. Here comes a blow. Mm. And another strike. And it's at the tip of his tongue. God, no. But he kept his mouth shut. And then what? He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And then we know this three days and nights passed, but this is where people start fussing and they start arguing. But there's no sense in arguing. Jesus told you what was going on. He said it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said to them, an evil evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, listen, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights, where? In the heart of the earth. In the heart of the earth. What's he doing for three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? He's not down there twiddling his thumbs and checking out his watch saying, are we done yet? Jonah said this, Jesus said this was the sign. So look at what Jonah said in chapter two, after he'd been swallowed by that great fish, he said, I cried by reason of my affliction. Verse two, unto the Lord, he heard me and out of the belly of hell cried I. Where's Jesus? Why did this take the working of the mighty power of God? Because many people believe You know, he died on the cross and and that was it. And the price was paid. Well, if that was it, why does it take the mighty power of God? If it's just about raising a physical body, 
That's already happened. That happened at Lazarus' tomb. That happened at Jairus' house. It happened in the Old Testament. If it's just about raising the physical body from physical death, then it does not require the working of his mighty power. Something else was going on. And I I found myself asking this question. I was like, but Jesus, you said on the cross, it is what? Finished. Now that gives you the impression it's done, right? What else is there to do? And there are people who would argue with what I'm telling you right now saying, see, no, look, he said it's finished. But the Bible says in the book of Romans, don't turn there, we'll we'll put it on the screen. In Romans chapter four, talking about Abraham, therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us. What will be? Righteousness. To us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now notice this. Who was delivered up. The Amplified says betrayed and put to death. He was put to death because of our offenses and, somebody say and, was raised or raised up because of our justification. What's that mean? Two different things had to happen. His death accomplished one thing. And when he said it's finished, it was. That thing was finished. The price for sin had been paid. He had been delivered up for our offenses as our substitute. It's like when you go through a store or a restaurant and your kids knock something off the shelf and it's broken and shattered in pieces on the floor. What's the manager say? I want to know who's going to pay for this. Who's going to pay for this? And that's what Satan, if you will, had been crying out from Adam to Jesus. Somebody's going to have to pay for this. Somebody's going to have to pay for this sin. I want to know who's going to pay for this. And instead of making you pay, Jesus paid. And the price for sin was finished. But he was delivered up for our sin, but he was raised up for our justification. In other words, you were not yet justified. The price for sin had been paid and you could go without paying it, but you were not yet justified. Two different things. Jonah cried out, deliver me. Out of hell I cried. Paul said in Ephesians 4, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. That's what Jesus said. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, wait a second. Does that mean that since he died on the cross, this physical body never dies? No, that can't be true because every person who's ever lived since the day Jesus died has died. 
So when it talked about him tasting death for us, it wasn't talking about you never physically dying. Well, what's he talking about? Let me say it to you like this. You can't pay a spiritual debt with a physical price. The debt that God or the, that man owed was spiritual and could not be paid just with a physical crucifixion. Now that it, it did pay. We've said it already. It paid for your sin. The stripes bought your healing, but you were not yet justified. He had to taste death. And what is death? The ultimate death. It is eternal separation from God. It's hell. And there are people that want to fight you on this. He didn't go to hell. Well, if he didn't, you have to. Because whatever he didn't do, you have to. Whatever's missing from his substitute, you have to fulfill. Yeah, he went three days and nights in the pit. The psalmist saw this. He saw it in Psalm 62 or 16. He saw it. I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture, but you need, you need to hear this. He saw it in uh, Psalm 16, verse 10. He said, you will not leave my soul in hell. Neither will you, uh, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And then Peter echoed these same things in Acts chapter two. He said, he was preaching and said, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I, sh that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in hell. You won't leave my soul in hell. The debt had to be paid. Spirit, soul, and body. If the debt we owed was spirit, soul, and body, it'd have to be paid. Spirit, soul, and body. Did he pay it physically? Yes, he did. An awesome, horrid, horrible price he paid physically. And yet it didn't even compare to the price he would pay in his spirit and in his soul. But he's crying out. David saw it. You will not leave my soul in hell, nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, this is Peter speaking. Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that one or that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in hell, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Amen. Amen. 
What required the mighty power of God? Hell had a literal death grip on the spirit and soul of Jesus. And this is what had never been done. And we talk about Satan being stripped of all his power and he's powerless and we're right. But you forget how he got that way. If he's powerless or if he's been stripped of something, what's that tell you? He had it at one point. He had the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Somebody had to go get them. Somebody had to fight. Now you know where Jesus was. Now you know what he was doing for you. This, this sacrifice was not a few hours on a Friday night. That was the physical price. Then came the taste of death. But the Bible says that Jesus stripped Satan of his power. He spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly triumphing over them. Folks, you don't triumph without a fight. There is no victory without fighting. And he did it. So remember, we're answering this question. How? How are the dead raised? We've seen it's the, work, it's the working of the mighty power of God. Yeah, we know that. Romans 8 says that if you're at the same spirit of, that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he'll quicken you. We know that. But listen to this and get yourself ready to shout. Thank you, Lord. In Romans chapter 6, we're going to answer this question. How are the dead raised? He said, what shall we say then? Verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Ready? Ready? Somebody say, I'm ready. <laughs> that just as Christ was raised from the dead. How? 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 By the glory. I thought it was the working of the mighty power. Uh-huh. I thought it was the spirit. Yes. I thought it was the glory. Yes. It was the glory. This thing that we've been spending the last two weeks talking about, the heavy, weighty presence of God, the brightness and the weightiness of who he is, it was the glory that raised him up from the dead. Jesus spent three days and three nights in the pit of hell fighting death itself. And there came a moment at the end of those days and nights where the voice of our Father echoed through the chambers of hell and said, you are my son today I have begotten you and the glory of God himself filled that emaciated spirit and brought life to him again and he rose up out of that grave victorious what do we know about that moment 
the earth began to shake. Where'd that shaking come from? The glory that hit the lower parts of the earth began to reverberate layer after layer after layer till it reached the surface of this earth. And that body that was lifeless, the spirit came back into it. He was filled again with the glory of God. And the stone was rolled away and out comes a man victorious over death. Out comes, out comes the working of the mighty power of God. God just flexed. And here comes Jesus. How then are the dead raised by the glory? And we know that if that's how he was raised, what is it that's going to raise you up? I don't care. If you live to be 99 years old and this body is just not what it was when you were 20 and maybe it goes into the earth and it feels frail and it feels weak, that's not how you're coming back. That's not how you, you are coming up out of that grave, but it ain't like that. How are the dead raised? By the glory. Okay, fine. But tell me this, what kind of body are they going to have? If it was the glory that raised the body, what kind of body you think it's going to be? A glorified body. And that's what he said in 1 Corinthians 15. They said, some will say, how are the dead raised? With what body do they come? And Paul said, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be. You're not putting in the ground what it will be. When you've got a seed that's got an apple tree in it, you don't bury a whole apple tree. You bury a seed. You're not putting in the ground the body that it will have. You're putting in the ground the body that it has now. And for it to have the body that it will have, the body that it has now has to die. He said, what you sow, you don't sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. I love this verse. Are you ready for this? Verse 38. What kind of body they're asking are they going to have? Verse 38. What's he say? God gives it a body. What kind of body are you going to have? This is my God given. This is my God bod. That's what I got. How are the dead raised? By the glory. Fine. What kind of body are they going to have? They're going to have a God given body body. God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. What's he saying? Everybody's got its own degree or measure of glory. But none of them can 
compare to the body you're going to have, to the body that he's raising up. That's why he says in verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. When you're standing out there at that graveyard and that casket's there and it's being lowered into the ground, what's happening? Seeds being sown. I was in attendance at the homegoing service of Evelyn Roberts. Dr. Orr Roberts' wife. And he stood on the stage that day. Well, first he sat. He was well into his 80s. And you could tell it was an emotional day for him. And they asked him if he wanted to say anything. And he said just a few words. And then he talked and talked. (laughs) But this is what he said that day that stood out to me and stuck with me. He said, now, now remember this about him. He was known for preaching a message called seed faith. This thing that you and I just talk so freely about, sowing seed and and faith being like a seed. This was big revelation in those days. And he was known for this message. And he stood on the platform that day and he said, today I have sown my most precious seed. That's a different way of looking at death, isn't it? It sucks the grief out of it. I'm sowing a seed. And that's what this is for the believer. And even if this body, this this earthen vessel, this severely limited shell, maybe it goes into the ground and it wasn't in its best shape. Okay. But it's coming back. And he said what gets sown in corruption... What did he say? So is the resurrection from the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. In glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Verse 50, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And that's what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago when Moses is crying out, show me your glory. What was God saying to him? I can make my goodness pass before you, but you can't see my face. No man can see me and live. In other words, you can't take it. This body that you have can't sustain it. It can't take that kind of weight. It can't handle that kind of light. It takes a different kind of body. It takes a born again body. It takes a reborn body. And what you and I, through the... (laughs) Through being born again and being raised from death to life spiritually... Now we can handle a measure of that glory. But even still, there's more to come. There's more to come. And we can't be so short-sighted that our entire fellowship and walk with the Lord has to do with this life. If this life is all there is, we pathetic. There is so much more to come. Heaven is so real. 
And not just heaven, but the way we show up there. The condition in which we arrive there. It's not in these bodies. These bodies get sown. This seed gets sown in corruption, but it gets raised in incorruption. It gets sown in weakness, but it gets raised in power. It gets sown in dishonor, but it gets raised in glory. How are the dead raised? The glory. What kind of body do they have? A glorified body. Why? Because this one can't handle it. You couldn't go to heaven in this body. You couldn't take the, the unfiltered presence of God in this body. That's why I said, brethren, that flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption in, uh, inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. How are the dead raised? Stand up with me. Answer this question. How are the dead raised? By the glory. Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus and he said to his sisters, did I not tell you if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? How are the dead raised? By the glory. What kind of body are they going to have? A glorified. Is anybody else looking forward to that body? Man, that body is going to be something else. So unlimited, capable of anything, never worried again about another wrinkle, about an, uh, too much weight, not enough weight, not worried about any of it anymore. And do you realize we marvel at, at, at man's technology and all the modern technology we have, but do you realize, stop and think about it, that just about everything, if not everything we have and marvel at, exists as a service to this severely limited body. We look up at airplanes in the sky and we think, wow, what a marvel that a, that a piece of machine can fly that, that high and that far and that fast. Yeah, it's a great thing. You wanna know why we have to have those things? Because this body can't travel at the speed of thought yet. Why do we have cars? Oh, these are oh, this amazing invention. Yeah, it's great. Why do you even have it? Because of how limited, how pathetic really this body is. Because this body can't travel at the speed of words, at the speed of thought. Look at these phones we have. Have you seen what they can do? Have you seen how we can communicate? Oh yeah, that's great. You wanna know why you have to have that? It's because we cannot yet communicate spirit to spirit yet. It's coming. It's coming. 
Will they have all these inventions in heaven? For what? What are you gonna need it for? Huh? I mean, everything man's come up with is, is in an attempt to help and aid this corruptible, sad shell. And it is what it is. And through the resurrection of Jesus, he has given us more than enough of his spirit and his glory to take care of the needs of this body, to raise it up from death to life. But there is a measure of glory that is coming and coming soon. And even if you and I both go the way of the grave, we're coming up out of that thing. Regardless of how that seed got sown, you're coming up. If you got sown into the ground when you were weak, you're coming up strong. If you got sown into the ground corruptible, you are coming up incorruptible. You got sown into the ground mortal, you're coming up immortal. I just don't know if I believe this stuff. I do. I do. And it's the only thing that makes any of my faith work. Without it, I'm a liar and you're a fool. But with it, this is what put power in every word Jesus ever preached. If he wasn't raised from the dead, then there was nothing he said worth listening to. Every message on faith that he or Paul or anybody else ever preached, the only reason it has any power is because Jesus was raised. Anything anybody ever said about living and walking in love, the only reason it has power and truth is because Jesus was raised. Anything you've ever heard about healing, the only reason it's good and it's right and it's true and it's powerful is because Jesus was raised. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we love and worship you. Thank you so much. Jesus, you're so, thank so, so wonderful and we're so thankful. We're so grateful that you paid the high and awesome price that you did. Thank you for taking our place and paying for us physically. And by the stripes that were put on your back, we are healed. But we know from your word that you paid an even higher price in your soul and in your spirit. And you tasted the pains of death and hell and the grave so that we wouldn't have to. If there's anybody in this church this morning that's not born again, there's only one way to escape the pains of death. There's only one way to, to live in eternity without tasting hell. You have to accept Jesus as your substitute. And if you'll do that, then heaven will record it that you paid for it. Heaven will record it that the price for you has been paid. It's good. You can go free. And because he was resurrected, not only can you be free, you can be justified. That means you're given access to the throne of grace. Made righteous in the sight of God. If there's anybody in here this morning that's never made Jesus the Lord of your life, you need to do it today. This is the day of your salvation. You've never repented and received forgiveness for your sins then do it right now. Don't put it off. Is there anybody that would raise a hand and say, pray with me. I want to be born again. Anybody at all? Thank you, Lord. Well, how about we do this together and say it out loud. Father, in Jesus' name, I believe in my heart that you raised Jesus from the dead. That your glory hit his spirit 
his soul and his body and brought him back from the pains of death. Resurrected him from hell itself. I believe that. And I receive that. I receive Jesus as my substitute. He paid the price so I wouldn't have to. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I call you, Lord. I'm done being my own God. You be my Lord. Take my life. Do something with it. And fill me with your Holy Spirit. Heaven is my home. I believe it. I'm looking forward to it. Say it again. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We believe it. We receive it. We thank you for it. We give you all the praise. Just lift up your voice and thank him and praise him. You're so good to us, Father. What a wonderful, glorious day. Thank you, Lord. I sought the Lord over a a title for this message and had several different things. But I think the Lord finally gave me something just moments before service today. And I'll give it to you the way he gave it to me. Best, period, day, period, ever. Best day ever. You believe it today? Well, listen, we love you. Celebrate this day with your family. And not just today, but keep it in your heart and coming out of your mouth all the time. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. And because he's alive, his spirit lives in me. And if I listen to his spirit, I will always be in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing with the right people in Jesus name. Amen. We love you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY and any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the House of Faith.